I'm Josh. I'm Joe, and this is Video Dropbox, a movie chat podcast where your hosts take turns challenging each other to browse a unique section of the video store and select a film in under one minute. If a title is not selected in time, we'll have to hit the Video Dropbox and defer to What's in the Basket. We are one episode away from our one-year anniversary, but before we do that, we have to tackle the trauma of Don Bluth. (laughs) Josh. Uh, your challenge last time was a Don Bluth movie. Why did you choose Don Bluth? We've kind of talked a little off mic before, and I think I mentioned it in the last episode, but one of the people from my childhood that I feel like do not get enough credit is Don Bluth. I mean, everybody mm-hmm. talks about the Disney films, everybody loves them, but I feel like the Don Bluth films are in its own, I don't know, genre. And I thought that was like, the perfect thing to challenge because he's got a huge filmography. And I mean, there's just a certain kind of mood with Don Bluth that I think a lot of people need to talk more about, but also give credit to. I mean, like, what what's your experience with Don Bluth? I really think that it's possible his original trio of movies, Secret of Nim, Land Before Time, and American Tale, were probably my three favorite films when I was a young kid, and eventually that was taken over by Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, maybe uh, Princess Bride before that, and Weekend at Bernie's whenever that fell in. And uh, like looking into it, animated films for me growing up, it first was Don Bluth. I didn't really care about Disney. And I do think that Don Bluth's productions have the better run in the 80s than Disney does. I think his movies were so much more impactful. And I think when I started caring about Disney was maybe Oliver and Company towards the end nice which i didn't see forever because i didn't get to it in theaters and it felt like they didn't put it out on video like i was always trying to rent it and could never find it yeah so it wasn't it probably wasn't until aladdin honestly that i started caring about disney i also think it's really important to point out that i think another reason why i picked him specifically and his genre is because as far as i can remember going that far back because i was fairly young when these films came out I just remember having an awakening, if that makes sense, when watching these films. Like Disney, it was all like, oh, the romance and the elegance and, you know, the the magic behind everything. The Don Bluth films, and again, this is, a, you know, coming from a child who can't really differentiate, like, who's making what. And to me, that's like all the animated films are the same. You know what I yeah. mean? You're just watching these films. But like, you could always tell, but you didn't know who was making them or why they were so different the Don Bluth films because it would be the first time where I feel like the bubble had popped for me and it was like oh my god I'm feeling things that I've never felt before and yes the Disney films can be sad and everyone can cite you know later on the Lion King and those traumatizing experiences but Don Bluth deserves the credit for the really I don't want to say traumatizing I guess that's a conversation we can have (laughs) but the seriousness of yeah you know people dying and having consequences and they were all sort of these moral tales that again like i said made you feel something and had a point to it it wasn't just like oh moving the story along now you know what i mean like this person's dead we're moving along like all dogs go to heaven you spend all these times establishing these characters you you know and love and then at the very end it's like your time with them is gone now the lesson there is like just enjoy the time you had together they're moving on you have to go on with your life like it's just really dark and depressing and sad as a child 
I talked multiple times about how I grew up in this conservative sort of religious bubble, and I wasn't like totally excluded or homeschooled from the world. But these films, honestly, again, were like challenging the things that I had kind of grown accustomed to. Like it was telling me, yeah, you know, it's a big wide world out there and you can get hurt and there are sad moments in your life and sometimes things aren't great. And I think another thing about Don Bluth and our childhoods and how sort of iconic these films were at the time that gets lost now looking back on it is how ingrained in the culture they were, where one of the first things to remember about Land Before Time was the Pizza Hut plastic dinosaur puppets. <laughs> yes. Like, yes. Those were the coolest thing. Uh, like American Tale, there were... I think, ironically, a bit, uh, a bunch of like Christmas ornaments because the Sears marketing department actually had a big hand in the design of Fievel for the purposes of marketing them. Did you have one of the giant Fievel stuffed animals? Oh, I don't think so. Did you? I did, and I still do. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like this is a post that maybe I should post on social media as proof. Um, of course, my husband hates that I still have this. But I also want to give a big shout out to, again, like you said, this was a big thing in the 90s. Like, I, I feel like a lot of 90s kids grew up with that giant Fievel stuffed animal. Mm -hmm. Like, someone, at least in your class, had that damn thing. And it was, yeah, it was like a pop culture item. I don't know where they are now or how people feel about them, but I mean, mine's still in really good condition. But yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like, I I had all of those Land Before Time toys, too. And I have to give a big shout out again to my husband, because whenever we talk about Land Before Time, I always would, like, tell him the only thing I remembered is, like, my favorite character was Sarah the Triceratops. And he would always say, you mean the bitch? <laughs> <laughs> and I just love him referring to, like, basically this dinosaur voiced by a child actress <laughs> calling her a bitch. But for the sake of the character, I suppose he's he's spot on. She is kind of an asshole when you watch mm. that movie. Well, I wanted to share too, because I, I did find my own article that I found interesting that was called Don Bluth on Nim Anastasia Disney Feud and Best Films. And this was an LA Times article by um, an author named Carlos Aguilar. And he pulled a quote from Don Bluth that I really appreciated that he said, if I was going to make an animated film, I didn't want to just make people laugh. I wanted them to have something to take home that could make their lives a little better. So I appreciate that because it kind of talks about or supports our conversation earlier about what we love with Don Bluth. But just even little simple details that I, I didn't know that I just thought was worth sharing is I was like pretty confident when I was watching the rewatching re this that I'm like, I knew he worked for Disney and he had to have worked on the Black Cauldron, right? But but he didn't. I'm going to say spoiler alert. I, I know he didn't. But like just seeing that animation and knowing like that, you know, that was the notorious tank for Disney. It 100% made me feel like, well, this either was worked on by Bluth or was inspired by him because it has that same sort of atmosphere and like feeling, which was very odd for a Disney film um, at the time. And I appreciated, uh, you know, in this article, it was saying when he left, the company was working on one of its biggest disappointments, the Black Cauldron. So I found that interesting. But then uh, another part of the conversation is because, you know, like his films have inspired a lot of sequels, whether or not he's given them his blessing or not. I had no idea. So two that he pointed out for sure was Secret of Nim. He said, what I really lament is 
that I would have loved to have done the sequel to Nim, but they said, no, it's ours now. We'll do it. And it was not very good. But then he also talks about Land Before Time because he, I'm going to read the quote. Um, so he says, he has not seen any of the more than a dozen sequels that were made. Viewing them as another example of greed tainting the creative process and animation by mass producing instead of handcrafting singular works. Uh, there are 14 movies total. Wow. 14 Land Before Times. Uh, two more things I wanted to just point out is, so at some point in this article, they did point out that Roy E. Disney, he said, basically at some point, I want you to come back to the studio. All is forgiven. We'll make it up to you. And Don said, well, Roy, I have 360 employees here. They all brought their families here to Ireland and you can't win this. And then he said in rebuttal to Don Bluth, well, you can't win this. We'll crush you. And so it said to that less than subtle threat, Bluth replied, well, maybe you need us. If we keep trying to compete with you, what might happen is you will work harder to make your pictures better. And so I love that kind of like sassy retort. But the last quote I wanted to share is that he said, every movie that I've ever made, if you look at it closely, it's about going home. There are thematic themes that seem to push their way inevitably into all my movies. Home isn't necessarily the soil that you walk on, but where your spirit can breathe, where your loved ones are. It's where all your memories are. It's something that's very dear. Uh, you had mentioned to me that you were going to try to watch all of Don Bluth's films. How did that go? <laughs> I didn't get very far. <laughs> I wish. I wish. I was trying really hard. And I actually, the one that I really wanted to watch that I didn't get to was Rockadoodle because I remember watching it when it came out. Again, I'm pretty sure I saw that in theaters. I know I loved it. And I think what blew my mind at the time was because it was that live action mix. Yeah. And that has to be like right a, right after Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Maybe three years, I think. So, what I mean, it's kind of like the girl it, in the it, red truck. Yeah, the girl in the red truck. Well, I'm going to, for the sake of just nostalgia, I'm going to put that on my top five. And then obviously the, the classics, American Tale, All Dogs Go to Heaven still hits. Like every time it's on, I watch it and I'm yeah. like, man, this is great. And then the ending like kills me. And I talked about it a little bit before. It's even sadder just knowing like the history of that child actress who. Yeah. Boys I didn't Marie. realize she died before the film was released. Yeah. So it's like, oh, geez. You can go down a real dark rabbit hole, like just reading about her and her history and just like what had happened. So I don't recommend that to anyone. But if you're <laughs> genuinely interested, go ahead. Of course, Land Before Time has got to be on there because it's just that hit nostalgia again. But Thumbelina Joe was my shit back in the day. And I'll tell you why. Because not only was... I obsessed with the lead, but the lead was voiced by Jody Benson, who played Ariel, the Little Mermaid. So oh. it was a big fucking deal. The cast for Thumbelina, like Gilbert Godfrey, of course, Carol mm. Channing is Mrs. Fieldmouse, but like Charo is Mrs. Toad is so great. Like her her whole scene with like the Toads, fantastic. So that's why I have to say, like, I was always a huge fan of Thumbelina, mostly for the music too, because it was very like theatrical for me a young gay boy wanting to like bust out and it's very i don't know it has those like queer moments too not because the characters are queer but just like those um queer camp moments i should say specifically the toad scene all that so it's near and dear to my heart bring fible home on video cassette and watch him bring fun you in the front higher higher <laughs> laughter Joy, tears, 
and love to your whole family. Steven Spielberg presents An American Tale, a Don Bluth film, now at video retailers everywhere. I missed it. Does American Tale make your top five? Or... Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. It's it for sure. Like I, you know, when I was younger, I'll just say like, I was always more into Five Goes West because I feel like that one was less intense. Yeah. You know, it's a little bit more like fun. <laughs> uh, I forgot like, going back to that. And there was a, we watched the VHS of American Tale uh, and it has a trailer for Five Goes West on it. I forgot that Jimmy Stewart plays the old dog sheriff. It's like, oh man, like that seems like quite a catch to get Jimmy Stewart doing your animated film. But anyway, we're here to talk about the original. And the original American Tale opens up on November 21st, 1986. It makes $47 million. It still opens number two to week nine of Crocodile Dundee. Oh, <laughs> if, if people forget how big of a movie that was at, a at the time. Because I feel we, oh, it was um, Trick or Treat, I think, came up like week six of Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> oh, God. Also interesting, this weekend, so American Tales number two at the box office, number three is the Disney re-release of Song of the South. Oh, boy. So they were re-releasing that uh, still into 1986. Yeah, that sounds problematic, but okay, <laughs> let's continue. So American Tales still becomes the highest grossing non-Disney animated film at the time, beating out Pinocchio in space. And I never realized this. How did you watch this film, Josh? I had the double DVD. So okay, you have both, the DVD. Both films were on the same disc. So starting with the DVD release and going into Blu-ray, and I don't think they've put out the original since, but they changed it where they redubbed certain characters' voices in the Orphan Alley scene, the addition of new voices where there was previously no dialogue, and new humorous sound effects. I was really lucky to have the VHS and watch it on that, because that's the original, and I was looking it up quick before we started recording, and there is something on YouTube, at least, that compares the Orphan Alley scenes. And I, I don't understand why they did that, but I don't know. Are you talking about the one where he's like at the very, very end where he's like just totally yeah. given up and the kids are just being total bully, dickheads yeah. to him? Yeah. They they redubbed some of the voices. Oh, weird. And yeah, for some reason, if you want to watch American Tale, how it originally was, you have to find a VHS of it. So cast and crew. Well, we've talked about Don Bluth, but just a little bit more information on him. So he's working at Disney, and I'll list off the Disney films that he worked on. He starts as a character animator in Robin Hood, and then works on many adventures of Winnie the Pooh. And the big one that I always associate with him, and for the longest time, I couldn't put my finger on why I enjoyed this film so much, but The Rescuers, that's where Don Bluth became the directing animator. And it totally has his fingerprints all over it in the animation, at least, and like mm -hmm. kind of this like darker setting of it. Uh, and he was also the animation director on Pete's Dragon, and then he comes into conflict with Disney over a number of things during Fox and the Hound. So he leaves Disney in 1979, gets a job doing the animation on Xanadu. Woo! And that builds up enough cred to be able to do The Secret of Nim. So after Secret of Nim, here he teams up with, of all people, Steven Spielberg. Uh, and they're together through Land Before Time, but then they split off for All Dogs Go to Heaven. I feel like every single movie, if you read the Wikipedia, like behind the scenes trivia, there's always conflict and always things being cut or being rushed. It just seems to plague Don Bluth. I don't know if that's a result of just his animation studio being smaller than, you know, a Disney machine or what, but it just, it's always seems like such a bumpy ride for him or I feel bad for him. Like I wish 
things were going a little smoother. And something, oh, something I forgot to touch on with him battling Disney. American Tale is released four months after uh, The Great Mouse Detective, and it does better. So that's a victory. Like they beat Disney in the year. In the next one, which I never realized, Land Before Time releases the same exact day as Oliver and Company, and it beats it. So they get a decisive victory over Disney. But then I feel the company gets a little cocky and they they put up All Dogs Go to Heaven on the same day as The Little Mermaid. And Little Mermaid comes out on top of that one. And from Mm. that point on, unfortunately, Rockadoodle did not beat whatever the Disney (laughs) film was out in 91. Well, I mean, let's be honest. They can't they can't hold a candle to Alan Menken because I feel like Alan Menken, that was his first, wasn't it? Little Mermaid was his first. Yeah. Okay. That was his first one. Sorry, Don Bluth. But anyway, moving back. Uh, so we have Don Bluth, Steven Spielberg. Now we have this third name coming through, the producer, who has the concept of American Tale. It's David Kirshner. Uh, I believe the year after American Tale, he also goes on to do Child's Play. Woo! Very different movies. Yeah. Uh, then he goes on. I didn't never realized he was involved in so many things that both of us really enjoy. Like I was a huge fan of Capital Critters at the time. It was like after The Simpsons, it was one of the first network TV cartoons. Uh, Pirates of Dark Water. I was mm-hmm. I was a big fan of. I think you had a crush on Ren at yeah, the time. Huge fan. Uh, and then the Halloween Tree, which I know you are also. Oh my God, loved it. Uh, the writers of American Tale, Judy Freudberg and Tony Geis, both worked on Sesame Street. Music by James Horner, who later went on to Titanic, among many other things. Uh, the songs we have Cynthia Weil and Barry Mann writing them, and then of course there's somewhere out there performed outside of this film by Linda Ronstadt and James Ingram. I was actually very, very charmed that they kept the children's voices singing in the movie, though, because the notes they're hitting are so ridiculously high (laughs) and they're like kind of broken. Like, I really love the imperfection of how it was sung in the movie. It just adds to it feeling special, I guess. Well, and it's just that much sadder. You're just like, holy shit. Like, I... I remember loving it when I was a kid, being really sad at that moment. But even now as an adult, it's like, if you aren't watching the scene and feeling a certain way, you are dead inside. (laughs) And then we get to the cast. I mean, speaking of uh, the kids singing, there weren't a lot of big names in the cast. uh, So I wasn't going to name many of them, but some of the bigger ones people might recognize. Madeline Kahn was Gussie, uh, one of the main mice. Christopher Plummer plays Henry the Pigeon. And then... I wanted to get your remembrance of this, but Tiger, biggest name, uh, is Dom DeLuise, who worked in a lot of Don Bluth's movies. But at the time, as a kid, between the animated films he was doing and I guess the commercials and Cannonball Run movies with Burt Reynolds, he seemed like the biggest movie star on the face of the earth. And that was not the case at all. But I don't know. What were your thoughts on Dom DeLuise as a kid? I just was going to point out that like I... I don't think I connected that it was him in all the movies, but like he was the character I feel like I always ended up liking the most as a kid, like Tiger and um, Itchy in All Dogs Go to Heaven. And I didn't realize until I was looking at this trivia that said that, of course, he has held the record for having the most, played the most characters in Don Bluth filmography, give or take sequels. But I didn't realize it says the only Don Bluth film uh, he wasn't in was The Land Before Time. Oh, yeah. And it also says... His only roles in Disney were Fagin from Oliver and Company. He was in Oliver and oh, Company. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And then Dionysus from Hercules. 
It oh. says. So we're now I'm trying to rewind because what came out at the same time as Oliver and Company was it Land Before Time? Yeah. Oh yeah. So, he so that him, makes he was, sense. He was up against him. Oh yeah. And yeah, he, so lost. He, <laughs> he, he lost. He lost. He learned his like, lesson. Oh. He, ch- he chose poorly. But I mean, yeah, I'm a big fan of him. I I just wanted to say like, shout out to Dom. Deloise too because I want to say he's in another movie that I really really like that not a lot of people remember I mean he's in a ton of stuff but is the haunted honeymoon oh yeah I don't know if you remember that where it's like he's notorious because he's in drag he plays like this Mm. woman and I think oh yeah directed by Gene Wilder yeah yeah Gene Wilder wrote it and starred in it with Gilda Radner yes uh let's see what some critics had to say about American Tale, first off, I wanted to quote Siskel and Ebert, who gave the film two thumbs down and said, it's the most downbeat children's movie since Return to Oz. Boo! <laughs> Which I'm like, I feel like American animation was probably still in the space there where it had a stigma and it's like, oh, this can't be dark. You can't deal with themes like this because Return to Oz is also great. It's one of my faves. But Leonard Moulton likes it a little better than that. He gives it his old solid <laughs> two and a half stars. Uh, that's hilarious. And he says, a young Russian mouse is separated from his family as they're about to arrive at their new homeland, America, in the late 19th century. Handsome, occasionally heart-tugging cartoon feature with a cute main character, but serious flaws in the story department. Well, we'll see. Getting into it. Our title credits open this film as a snowflake dances across the screen, and the score, in my opinion, grabs you by the throat immediately. Good old James Horner. Mm-hmm. It's established that it's a particularly hellish winter in Joshka, Russia, 1885, which we in Minnesota can relate to. Um, and we eventually meet the Mousegwitz family. There's Mama, who cradles the baby, Papa, Tanya, and our lead, Fievel. And I have to just point out, I do love that the baby all but disappears, essentially, yeah. in the film. <laughs> It exists, and we see it here and there, but then there's a lot of times where the family's all together, but the baby's nowhere in sight, and you're like, yeah. hey, what's going on? But we go back to the family, Papa gifts Tanya a new babushka, while Fievel gets an oversized blue hat that he's told is a family heirloom. And Papa tells the kids about America and paints this delusions of grandeur that in America there are no cats. Um, and the family is immediately interrupted as humans arrive by horse outside their home and begin torching the homes and shooting off rounds. And... Is this supposed to insinuate something like something specific in Russia at that time in 1885? It was the pogroms in the Russian Empire. It was a lot of anti-Jewish rioting that began in the 19th century. I am told by Wikipedia that pogroms began to occur after Imperial Russia, which previously had very few Jews, acquired territories with large Jewish populations from the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and the Ottoman Empire from 1772 to 1815. Well, torched homes and people are shooting off rounds. There's miscellaneous mice that are fleeing the scene, holding as many of their personal belongings as they can. And then we get bloodthirsty cats with top hats and peacoats <laughs> arriving and essentially attacking them. And this is like high stakes. This isn't the normal children's film where it's just like, oh, they got away. Everything's okay. Like, no, not everything's okay all the time. But Fible thinking he's hot shit, grabs a pot and tries scaring them away by banging on it and chasing the cats. But he essentially has ended up chased through town and narrowly escaping. Uh, the rest of the family then does end up catching up to Fievel, 
relieved that he's okay, but to their horror, they then turn around and see that their town is completely ablaze, including their home. And Papa looks at them just very forlorn and says, in America, there are no cats. So we cut to Hamburg, Germany. And the family regroups at the docks and board a boat while a pokeban. I love this little detail, Joe. So like there's this pokeban, like kind of bringing up the rear. They're just playing this kind of like happy-go-lucky music as they're walking the rope up to the boat. And as they're climbing, Fievel is kind of in the middle and he's just mesmerized by everything around him. So he keeps stopping to point things out, being like, look, Papa, the ocean. Look, Papa, the birds. And so it's every time he stops... Everybody ends up running into each other because they have to stop dead in their tracks. And the band's super pissed and they stop playing. So about the third time he does it, everybody just screams, keep walking, (laughs) which I do love. So they eventually make it to the ship and and it departs. So uh, we're on the boat and topside, we see humans huddling under their blankets, trying to get some rest. While then we kind of go below through a hole in the wall and see our group of mice doing the same. And they do that really well in this. They kind of show like what the humans are doing. The mice are also doing. And Bible, the little shit he is again, sneaks off and finds this barrel of fish. And Papa catches up to him and explains, oh, these are herring. And he goes on to tell him that there are all kinds of fish and that there are even some that are as big as this boat. And he should have known better because, of course, this riles up Bible. And he beelines back to his mother, telling her about the fish. And she's like, you know what? You're just lucky you didn't see any cats. And I love that the entire group on the ship, who like some of them are even sleeping, as soon as they hear cats, they like jump up and gasp. But that prompts Papa to lead in, into the song, There Are No Cats in America. And as the song goes on, others start joining in, establishing that quote, the refrain is, there are no cats in America and the streets are paved with cheese. I love that. <laughs> And then outside, we get the shot of the ship just getting hammered by the rain as it's traveling. The boat is tousled, making many mice sick. Water starts creeping in through the floor, kind of brushes a bar of soap back and forth. And eventually, again, I don't know what Fievel is doing, but it, it's the bar of soap slips right underneath him, ends up pulling him away because, of course, he's not thinking to jump off. He's just riding the damn thing back and forth. Pulls him through a hole in the wall towards an open straight razor, which is which is just on the ground. Like it's it's pretty terrifying. But I do love, I don't know, there was just something satisfying, even though it was illustration of just that razor like cutting through the bar of soap and just seeing that little <laughs> detail. It was great. It clearly misses him, but slides the bar of soap out towards the barrel of herring, and Bible finally hops to safety, but Instead of doing the right thing, he's too preoccupied again as a kid, noticing the doors leading to the deck opening above him, or opening and closing from the storm above. And some water and fish are kind of thrown from the ocean onto the boat and down the stairs towards Fievel. And he's, of course, enamored by these fish. He's like, whoa, that's so cool. And then we hear Papa's voice calling out to him. But this little shit, instead of running back to his father, he replies, I'm getting my hat, Papa, and takes it off and throws it like a Frisbee up towards the top of the stairs. Papa pleads for him to stop, but he he keeps going anyway. The hat is pulled onto the deck along with Fievel. Papa reaches out for him, but Fievel's pulled away by the water. He avoids certain death a few times, but... This little detail, Joe, these are those things I'm talking about, like as a kid, it's kind of terrifying because as Fievel looks out into the water, the water essentially transforms into what I thought it looked like, an angry King Triton from Little Mermaid. It's kind of this shadowy, like scary beast figure in the water. Yeah, I thought it kind of looks like the devil or the demon from Fantasia too. Yeah, 
And it's just totally hammering, like slamming into the ship, like with its arms and face. It just turns into water when it hits the ship. But the, I, I refer to it as the ocean demon. <laughs> Closes it in on Fievel and throws, eventually throws him overboard. And Papa cries out for him, which Fievel does make it to the surface, but is immediately pulled away from the ship. And these little details, I'm telling you, these are really terrifying. Like as Fievel's crying out, he's now too far from the ship. And it's essentially like this very sad moment where he's just like, he's crying, the father's yelling, and it's just kind of, it's all over. And so the next morning, we see the ship docked. Humans disembark, and directly below them, we see the mice doing the same. They all go through immigration, uh, and the Mouskowitz family register with immigration. First, Papa tells the clerk that there are five of them, but then got to hit it home here. The tears fill his eyes as he changes his answer back to four. And Tanya immediately asks why her name is Tilly now. And I do love that little detail because it's just this really sad moment. And then all of a sudden it just ends with her Tanya being like, why is my name say Tilly? And it just keeps moving on. There's no explanation kind of reminding you like this is what happens. Yeah. So our James Horner score punches us in the gut again as we learn Fiebel has survived and is floating inside a bottle towards the Statue of Liberty. Pretty lucky. He seemed to be far out uh, in the ocean. but Yeah, and where did that bottle come from? But very lucky. But uh, he washes ashore and is greeted by a French pigeon named Henri Le Pigeon, Christopher Plummer. So Henri Le Pigeon tells Fiebel that he's made it to America. And he also mentions that the humans are putting up his statue. I love yes. that. And uh, later, Fievel is taken in by Henri. And Fievel whines about how he'll never find his family. And Henri launches into the song, Never Say Never. Which definitely, like I said, reminds me of the um, You're Sure to Do Impossible Things If You Follow Your Heart. I don't know what the actual title is, but the French swallow that sings that in Thumbelina. It's mm. very similar. But Fievel joins in on the singing and is now determined to find his family, turning his frown upside down. Um, Henri tells him, all of a sudden, breakneck, that, you know, good for you, but I actually, I can't help you with this. I have to stay and finish my statue. So <laughs> it's like, okay, like, I don't know what he's doing, but uh, so he's pretty much written out for now as Fievel is whisked away on the back of this sassy female pigeon that just kind of came in for the chorus. I love the detail of that with the little, like, bonnet hair that the <laughs> pigeon has. It's just fantastic. At the docks, we meet Shifty Warranty Rat, who is accompanied by his accountant, Digit, a cockroach, and Fievel literally drops in on him, uh, which sparks kind of an idea for Warranty Rat. So Warren introduces himself and convinces Fievel that he does know where his family is and starts leading him into the city. So we catch up with the Mouskowitz family, who've taken residence inside a handbag. I love that. Tanya tells the family she has this feeling that Fievel is still alive, while Mama tells her very sadly, oh, after a while, it will go away. It's like, oh, God. God, it's so, so depressing. We pan down a few floors down below the Moskowitz and see Warren leading Fievel into basically the same complex. It's kind of confusing. Yeah. But he's a few floors below them and essentially leads him right into this trap where he's accosted by Mo, who's a leader of the sweatshop, who immediately throws him into the sweatshop with all these other young mice um, and puts him to work. So later that night, the rest of the enslaved mice are sleeping. Fievel tells most of them that are ignoring him that he has to escape to find his family. He meets Tony Taponi. Tony Taponi. Yeah. Yeah. He's very, uh, very stereotypically Italian. 
I have to ask, is he your uh, MVH for American Tail? It's funny you say that because <laughs> as a kid, I definitely remember having feelings toward him. And then, of course, being obsessed with Bridget later. Oh, yeah. And so the fact that those two got together, it was just like, oh, yeah, I want to be her. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, he's like the early uh, Aladdin or like a Newsy, yeah. pretty much. Yeah, you yeah. Know, all Newsy, the Newsy yeah. boys. So, yeah, he meets, Fievel meets Tony, who's an Italian tough guy who renames Fievel Philly. And I do love that because we he, very stereotypically, again, he's always calling him Philly. <laughs> uh, so Fievel is all business as he ties pieces of fabric together to form a ladder outside the window to escape. Like shockingly quick, he found a way out. <laughs> yeah. We're not wasting any time here, but I do love also that like Fievel pretty much puts it together and then like descends and Tony like turns around to start going down. And as he looks down, it's like, oh, he's gone. Fievel's gone. He didn't wait for me. Thankfully, we see him again. But yeah. I was like, damn, I swear he had a bigger part. So um, Bible's gone, and he agonizingly makes his journey through the city. And so as he does, we kind of get this montage of him seeing other kids at school through a window. He hears his name at one point, only to find out that there's another Fievel, which I do love that there's more than one Fievel in <laughs> NYC. He's even run off, practically ran off some train tracks by a passing train. And so down and out, he hears this violin and perks up and is convinced it's his father. Um, he scales a building and climbs into the window, only to find that it's music coming from a phonograph. And Joe, this is another really sad moment where he's just sitting in the phonograph and he's just like really feeling sorry oh, for himself. Yeah. Well, and it gets only worse because then he falls through the phonograph, slides out. The humans see him. They all start screaming and throwing things at him. And he's literally thrown out of the room. But thankfully, then on the street below, he runs into Tony again, who then takes him under his wing. So we have another close encounter between Five and his family. Tony and Five are like crossing a bridge while Pop and Tanya are passing by underneath it. So we got this, for lack of better words, cat and mouse type situation going <laughs> on. Like, ooh. Tony and Five run into Bridget, my girl, this passionate Irish mouse, basically leading a soapbox discussion about the cruelty of cats. And other mice scatter, avoiding the conversation altogether, while Tony approaches her completely, like, love-struck and spitten. I mean, he is just like Monterey Jack with his cheese and Rescue Rangers. <laughs> the two of them kind of have a moment, and then, again, very quickly, eventually, like, just kiss. And it's like, whoa, damn. Well, Fievel helps out in that regard. I guess, yeah, he bumps into him, right? Yeah, or like he's tugging on Tony's tail and then let's go and they kiss, but they don't mind. Yeah, and then it's over. Again, it's just like, oh, well, there goes Tony again. You're not going to see yeah. him again for a while. <laughs> uh, so Fievel's on his own again, and he asks basically the scattering mice why they're so afraid of the word cat. And he explains, well, there are no cats in America until one stealthily sneaks up behind him and, surprise, swallows him whole, Joe. <laughs> And it's not looking good for Fievel, but he does, we get a shot of the inside of the cat's throat, and he's essentially crawling up its throat, grabs onto, you know, the thing back in the back of your throat, and tugs on it and gets coughed out, thankfully. So the cat chases after uh, the other mice, and Tony, Bridget, and Fievel finally reunite after the cat's gone. And Tony tells Bridget about Fievel's family. Bridget has an idea and suggests they visit Honest John, because she she says that he knows every mouse in the city and should be able to help. And after they leave, 
there's yet again another close call with the Mousewoods family as they kind of just appear from some of the like wreckage yeah. wreckage yeah like in the street and i do love mama is no nonsense she just essentially turns to papa and she's like well mister there are no what's in america <laughs> so and oh man she must be so pissed right on that long ass boat and they lost a child because he promised that there were no cats <laughs> yeah. and there was cheese everywhere and now that they're there they're just like and we don't even have our names so screw you but we catch up with honest john who is completely wasted and continues to be overserved. And I was like, what is going on here? Until it's later explained that on the table in front of him is a dead mouse. And we learn uh, not only that John is using the dead to tally ghost votes, but he also <laughs> goes on to explain that it's an Irish tradition as we see other passed out drunk mice in the background. First off, being like sad for a second about the dead mouse and then writing his name in his book is like, well, he'll be voting for me. Like That's <laughs> such a dark adult joke. And also, I love the little detail, again, little details, when someone's trying to pour him a drink, and it keeps missing the glass and hitting the ground, and it's burning holes yeah. in the wood. <laughs> it's like pure alcohol. So we get Honest John, and then he's confronted by, as we meet, Gussie Mouseheimer, played by Madeline Kahn, who is the richest mouse in NYC, who asks him to hold a rally to decide what they're going to do about their damn cat problem. And Fievel, Bridget, and Tony are kind of like all there all of a sudden. Like, because mm. we see her enter, but like they just kind of come out of nowhere, in my opinion. And Bridget then turns to John, explaining since he knows every mouse, boating mouse in the city, he must know Fievel's parents. And John, who's completely gone, mentions that essentially because Fievel and his family just got off the boat, he unfortunately doesn't, well, not Fievel, I'm sorry, his family just got off the boat. He unfortunately doesn't know any of them yet. So. We get a shot later, Bridget, as she tucks Fievel in, and he's peering out the window. And this is where we get our tearjerker. Somewhere out there where Fievel's, you know, singing off key and really hitting it home. And then across the city, we see Tanya, who's basically duetting it with him and singing it back. And it's just making you feel all the feels. So the next morning at the rally, there's another tease as on stage Gussie speaks to the crowd. We see Bridget and Fievel are standing directly behind her. And in the back of the crowd of this huge rally is the Mousewoods family who are trying to climb over other people to see the stage, but they can't see anything. So thus they can't see Fievel. And we do get a shot of Fievel whispering a suggestion to Gussie as she's talking on stage. She ends up telling Honest John about the plan and they seem to be kind of amused by it. So later that night at the docks, I do love this too. It's like a line of mice holding candles, but they, so at first they look like torches, but then they zoom in and you see them in person, like closer. And they're just like birthday candles that they're holding. And they're kind of gathering stuff together to arm themselves. While across town, Tony and Fievel realize that they're late to meet up with everyone. And man, Tony, way to leave Fievel in the dust because he is rushing through that city and just never turns back to see if he's still there. So Fievel, once again, is distracted by a violin playing in the sewers. So he decides to follow the music. And there's a pretty terrifying scene, in my opinion, of like he's in the sewers and there's like these creepy crawly bugs following him. And they're like closing in to like eat him. I don't know. Yeah. It's really creepy. Uh, and Fievel eventually finds a group of cats playing poker in the sewers, which is kind of hilarious because the whole dog's playing poker thing. Amongst them is Clueless Tiger, Dom DeLuise, and then Warren T-Rat is there, and he, we find out he's the one playing the violin. And in a twist, 
I didn't remember this. He removes oh. his nose and ears, revealing that he's actually a cat posing as a mouse. Um, and he ends up clocking Fievel and instructs his gang, who are apparently called the Mott Street Maulers. I didn't catch the name, but I saw that oh. description. Because I was wondering why everyone's, it's, especially Tiger, is wearing the little shirt with an M on it. I'm like, that mm-hmm. must be their gang, but I've missed what it was. Yeah, the Mott Street Maulers. So they chase after Fievel through the sewers. And man, this is another really effective scene, Joe. Like, Fievel manages to make it back up to the street safely. But it's very horror movie where, like, he stops right outside the, like, manhole. And then he, like, takes a breath, you know, and is thinking he's safe. And then is immediately, like, there's this hand that comes out and, like, grabs him and pulls him back in the sewers. And then, like, the lid closes. And it just reminded me very much of sort of those moments that we love to hate. Like the Sarah Michelle Gellar I know she did last summer where it's like, keep running. Why are you stopping to turn around? (laughs) So yes, very effective. And again, as a child, I think is pretty terrifying. So back at the dock, Gussie goes over the secret plan to chase all the cats onto a boat. And that's the big plan that Fievel pitched. And the plan is to chase them on a boat that's headed for Hong Kong. I love that. And so meanwhile, we cut back to the sewers where Tiger's on the guard duty and Fievel's locked away in a birdcage crying. It's so sad. He's like legitimately crying, little kid crying. And Tiger tries cheering him up asking him what's wrong. And I do love this detail too, where he's like, don't worry, I love mice. And Fievel's like, ah! like just cries <laughs> even harder because he thinks he's basically saying like, I love to eat mice. But basically Tiger one tells him, oh, don't worry, I'm I'm a vegetarian, I think is what he says. Mm-hmm. And two, Fievel explains, you know, that he lost his family and Tiger relates to the story. Um, so the two of them end up bonding because apparently Tiger lost his family as well. And... The two of them launch into the song, A Duo, which then Fievel is let out of his cage to perform. And after their song, Digit, that damn cockroach, sounds an alarm notifying the other cats that Fievel's out of his cage. And so he's then on the run, chased out of the sewers, and leads them to the docks and starts yelling immediately for Tony's help, which he's way too early for. Yeah, there was talk before, like, they have to be here exactly at this time because that's when the boat will be there. Yeah, and Fievel's just jumping the gun and ruining the plan. They're there way too early. So Gussie hears Fievel and tells the other mice that the cats are early. They panic and release their secret weapon, quote unquote, early. Uh, Honest John tries preventing it from launching and successfully stops it because it kind of has this back and forth. Like they're like, release the secret weapon. Wait, never mind. We don't need it. Stop it. So these poor mice are like, they cut it loose and they try to wind it up because then it's not supposed to be moving and they're just like totally stressed. Meanwhile, Warranty Rat appears in rat form and tries kind of throwing the mice off by saying, if you give me all your money, I'll ensure the cats don't attack you. And he also asks them to give up Fievel, which Fievel then tells them about the disguise. And I do love uh, MVH here, Tony using a slingshot to take out Warren's fake ears and nose. And then the mice are clearly furious to find out he's a cat. So Gussie tells him, Warren, that he's completely through and he'll never work in this town again. But Warren has one more trick up his sleeve, and so he lights a match and ignites the building the mice are in. So the boat Tong Kong starts blowing its horn, notifying them that, "Uh uh-oh, it's time to go. Honest John scrambles to finally release the secret weapon again, but they're all tied up and trying to get it loose. And with Fievel's help, he eventually does. Not before Fievel getting completely knocked out, which, man, again, like he's taken the hits. So the secret weapon is revealed to be this giant mouse float. To me, it looks like a parade float, but it's like shooting fire. scary-ass 
parade float. Yeah, yeah, scary. Because its like mouth is moving and it's like shooting fireworks out from its mouth at the cats, no less. So all the cats are running towards the boat, but are instead thrown into the water. And then I kind of was like at first, like, are they dead? Like, because cats <laughs> notoriously don't like water. And so I don't know if they know how to swim, but we do see them later, like riding the anchor of the boat back up. So they are okay. Can we stop for a second to talk about that mouse float? Yeah. Uh, which is the giant mouse of Minst, which is the folk tale that Fievel's papa tells him earlier in the story. That's why he has the idea. This thing's insane. Like, we talk about how cool the animation is with the hand-drawn, sketchy animation, but this is especially so, where it's the face of it especially is so sketchy and horrifying. It's made <laughs> from the skull that they found of something, I don't know what, an alligator or something. This is probably the thing I remembered most about the movie throughout all the years. Like, I didn't realize how long it's been since I've seen this. And I was convinced that this plan goes wrong. But then I realized I'm actually thinking of A Bug's Life, which has, like, the same exact thing happen in it, <laughs> except that plan is the one that fails. It's like, oh, yeah, you basically did the same thing. I don't know if you remember Bug's Life. It's been a while. They create a giant fake creature to scare off the insects that are bothering them. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I totally forgot about that detail that that's the inspiration that gave Fievel the idea to create mm. that. So the mice, I'm sorry, the cats are long gone. They're on their anchor going up. Going to Hong Kong. Hong Kong. And I do love one of them is just like, well, I guess we got to learn Chinese. I think is what one of them says. The mice celebrate by singing, now there are no cats in America. Because and... they got rid of five. Yeah, exactly. I love that. And Honest John tells the crowd that they owe it all to Philly, and the Mousequits are there, and but they have no idea who the hell Philly is. And so, you know, we cut back to Fievel, who's still knocked out. And surrounding him, we see pools of spilt kerosene, and the fire that Warren started earlier igniting some of the kerosene. And so Tony and Bridget try calling for Philly. Tanya, oh, they actually say Philly Mousequits! which Tanya overhears and tells the family about. Papa's convinced it's someone else, but Tanya will not let up. So the two of them run into Tony, meaning Tanya and Papa, because he's chasing after her, because she's just like, I'm beelining for this voice as I got to see what's going on. Tony explains and does reveal that, you know, Philly is Fievel. Oh. And Mama emphasizes this by showing him Fievel's hat that, that Bridget found. And while all this is happening, we get a quick shot of Tiger listening in outside. Fievel finally comes in, uh, comes to, I'm sorry, and limps through the fire. We get the shot of human firefighters arriving to put out the fire. They end up blasting Fievel with the hose, washing him away. So we catch up with Fievel later, because he's now separated from the family again, wandering the city streets. And this is that dub scene that we were talking about earlier, where he is harassed by these orphans who are the absolute worst. I mean, <laughs> everything they say is just terrible. And Fievel finally admits defeat and accepts the streets as his home. And this is like a really depleting moment in this film. Like we get a lot of really sad, defeated, depleted moments. But this one particularly hurts because he's just done. Uh, as the sun starts to rise, we get another blast of that James Horner. While, and then while Fievel sleeps, we hear the Mousequits family calling out for him. We cut to Bridget, Tony, Mama, Papa, Tanya, and Gussie <laughs> riding on Tiger's back. But not the baby. Yeah, and the baby's nowhere to be found. Maybe he's in Tiger's mouth. I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they take turns calling out for Fievel and, and Philly, and this wakes him up 
basically as he hears the voices and music from his papa's violin he does finally yell out and they do reunite in an embrace thank god and even gussie sheds a tear and she like kind of has his comments like she's supposed to be kind of a hard hard guy but like you know i guess she's got the emotions for this moment which again is all of us and papa gifts Fivo's hat back and when he does he sees that it now fits perfectly and tells him my son now you're a mouse uh, so we cut to Five and Tanya on Henri's back. Mama and Papa ride our lady pigeon as the family soars through the sky to see the completed Statue of Liberty. Some of the other lady pigeons are even seen carrying Tiger, which is crazy, carrying this cat like how many feet in there? But Five compliments Henri on the statue and you know, his accomplishment. Lady Liberty winks at the kids. It's crazy. <laughs> uh, and then Fievel asks Henri about the land that he sees out in the distance. And Henri explains, oh, well, that's just more of America. And Fievel asks if he can see it, to which Henri says, you will, my little American, someday you will. And so Fievel goes west. He does. But I don't know. I felt like very melancholy at this moment, too, where Five and Tanya wave goodbye as we get one last shot of the statue and more James Horner taking us in the credits. But it's like they're waving to the statue, but it's like they're also waving to the audience being like, goodbye. Thank you for being with us. And it's really sad. Credits start. And then eventually somewhere out there plays one last time. But this time we get the Linda Ronstadt, James Ingram closing us out. Uh, so that is an American tale. And Joe, I'm dying mm-hmm. to know. Did you and your wife think it held up? Uh, I do. I was absolutely in love. And this is one of those rare times because there's stuff that I haven't gone back to in a while that we do on this podcast, but it had been a really long time. I just think like I had gone back more to Secret of Nim because I remember that being one of like maybe my first movie I thought of as my favorite movie. So that's the one I would watch more. And, and then Land Before Time, that one too. But this one, for some reason, I just never went back to but every moment of this movie going through it is like i remember this detail i remember all this stuff i remember these songs so it was a very huge flood of nostalgia and i i think it really holds up as something different uh natalie because she she had seriously considered this as her film that she she eventually chose ducktales the movie treasure of the lost lamp a few episodes ago she thought it was just okay where and we we've ha- we have conversations about this a lot when we're revisiting 80s movies that there was there's definitely a certain editing and pacing style that is prominent through 80s american films it's more of like i guess like a vignette style mm-hmm. but because of that the pacing is just really awkward and so like some of those like 80s classics i i fe- we both feel we have a hard time going back to or seeing for the first time so that was her issue here, that, like, that it's, very, it's really, you know, like, very segmented, which I do understand where that's coming from, but I, I, it doesn't bother me as much because I feel this keeps more of a pace, like, just like, boom, 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 things are happening. And I think that's also a result of, you know, things are being cut because of budget or because they have to cut things down because they find them too terrifying for children. I remember, like, the scary wave monster, they actually cut some of that because they found it too scary. I'm like, what did you cut? Because it's terrifying <laughs> in the movie. Yeah, exactly. How did you feel about it? And how, like, when was the last time? Do you remember the last time you saw this? Maybe like two, three years ago. Oh, I so mean, it hasn't been that long. Every okay. now and then it's on TV. I can't say I've watched it all the way through. Like we've definitely caught it on TV and watched part of it together, Adam and I. I mean, Land Before Time is definitely one that's on way more than this one. But yeah, I don't know. I Okay, so my overall thought, even as a kid, was always 
I gravitated towards Five Goes West because this one always felt like way more of a bummer to me, like hard hitting, like over and over and over again, because it's essentially like he's trying to get back to his family, but it's just like, just keeps hitting you over the head. Like, yeah. nope, nope. Actually, no. And actually, no, no. Finally, yeah. you'll never meet your family. And so I was expecting it to be sort of a slower buzzkill than I thought it was watching it again. And I was like, this, I get what you mean by the pacing, but I didn't think it was that bad. I actually thought it moved pretty quickly and I, I liked it. I'm glad that you picked it. I'm not going to lie. Like, that was my first thought when you had picked American Tale. I was like, oh, is this going to be kind of a drag because it's a serious, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a more serious yeah. Don Bluth film. No, I didn't think so at all. Well, should we move on to next week's episode? Yeah. Well, next episode, we will not have a challenge because it is our one-year anniversary. Hey! And what are we doing for our one-year, Joe? Well, we wanted to do something special, so we thought we would bring it back to where it all began (laughs) with the one and only Sandy B., We're returning to Sandra Bullock because if you don't remember, listeners, Josh's first challenge to me was to pick a Sandra Bullock film, and we picked The Net, but she has quite the filmography, so there's plenty more to choose from. Josh, what movie have we decided on? We have decided on the titular film, Forces of Nature, which I'm very happy you agreed, A, to do another Sandra Bullock film because... Let's be honest, I just am so obsessed with her. And it'll be fun to talk about her again, because I know you appreciate and like her, but I just don't know if you're being kind or if you genuinely <laughs> if you genuinely are like, okay, yeah, like I have an appreciation for her and I, you know, I'm into showing her the love again. I'm curious because I've never seen this before. Did you see this in theaters? I'm trying to remember if I did because- It was 99, so. I want to say yes, but I'm not 100% sure because also this was the time where I was on my huge run. Like this would have been the year where I was really going hard on collecting all the Sandra Bullock's films on VHS. Mm. Like even the obscure ones that I've mentioned in the earlier episode, like Fire in the Amazon and The Vanishing, where she's oh, only yeah. in it a little bit. Just really, oh, The Hangman, I think is another like really obscure, weird one. But this for sure is definitely high up on my list. Like of the 90s era Sandra Bullock, because let's be honest, this is peak Sandra Bullock. I'm not saying anything after the 90s was not. It's just, this is my golden Disney renaissance era yeah. um, <laughs> of Sandra Bullock. I don't want to talk more about it because I don't want to ruin it. Yes, listeners, join us next episode for our anniversary. And for the anniversary, we are now spread out even more across the internet Previously, you can listen to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts, but now we are on Amazon Music, CastBox, iHeartRadio, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and Stitcher. Woo-hoo. So now, as we conquer the internet, please listen, uh, follow us, and review us on whichever one you prefer. Uh, Also, for upcoming release info, you can visit Video Dropbox Podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like to contact us, you can reach us at videodropboxpodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on social media. Until next time, please remember to be kind and please rewind.